This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today's episode takes us out to Southwest North Dakota to visit with crop consultant Josh Hammett. Josh owns Pharmacist Consulting, where he works with farmers mostly around the Beach, North Dakota area. Conserving moisture is a top priority out there in this part of the state, and no-till has been a standard practice for decades now. And like we always say on the show, there's no silver bullet when it comes to soil health. So Josh talks about some of the challenges that these farmers face in the area, in some cases because of long-term no-till, in other cases just because of general soil health-related issues. We end up covering a wide range of topics from pH to residue management to strip-till to livestock and compost and beyond. Josh is also a member of the Trusted Advisor Partnership that you've heard us talk about in earlier episodes of the season. I think you'll enjoy this one and leave with some great perspective on a number of different important soil health related topics. Josh is going to kick things off with a little bit of background on what led him from growing up on a farm in Galva, just south of Beach, to becoming an independent crop consultant in the area. So I grew up on a farm, initially wanted to go back to the farm, but our farm was so small that it couldn't support one person, let alone another family member. So after college, I moved to Minot, got to work with a research and consulting company up there. So I got to work with test plots and soil sampling, crop scouting, got introduced to it that way. Moved into the retail market, uh, worked for a local elevator, so selling chemicals, seed fertilizer, that kind of thing. And uh, just eventually had some of my farmers urging me to become a crop consultant. They said if it wasn't going to be me, they'd find somebody else. And so just a great way to start a business when you've already got guaranteed people. Yeah. And and what what's the difference there? Because I'm sure you were doing a lot of the same work in retail, but you said, you know, the farmers really wanted a crop consultant. So can you maybe talk about the differences as it pertains to your situation? Sure. So the biggest difference is I don't sell any uh, crop inputs. I really don't sell anything but advice. So even what I tell them, they're free to make their own decision and do something else entirely, but they just wanted a completely unbiased opinion. So I did give them advice and those type of things at retail. They were just looking for a, a independent opinion. Gotcha. Okay. And that when they said, hey, if you if you don't do this, we're going to find someone else. It's because they wanted someone that was paid just for advice. Correct. Yep. And so was there not an independent crop consultant or just not enough there before you, you started? There was uh, none that I'm aware of in that part of the state before I started. Since then, there's been a, a couple others that I've run into, but still not as common as it is in the eastern part of the state. And what was most difficult for you going from retail to independent crop consultant? Probably the biggest challenge for me was just uh, wondering where my paycheck would come from. <laughs> so there's a lot of a lot of benefits of working for somebody else, you know, guaranteed paycheck and bonuses and things like that. So that was the hardest part. Once I got across that hurdle, you know, for me, I'm pretty self-motivated. So I have to work on not taking on too many acres you know, only doing what I can, you know, do a good job for the hours and the day that there are. So I actually have to turn down business just to make sure that I do a good job on the acres that I'm covering. So I don't get too much work, if that makes sense. It does. Have you thought about trying to hire someone so you can keep from saying no? 
<laughs> every year, my wife and I have a conversation trying to make that balance. The hardest part is finding somebody that I would trust completely, just as always myself out there to give advice and not have them just take the acres I give them and start their own business. So if I find the right person, it would be somebody who doesn't want to run their own business, but loves, you know, the scouting and the agronomy part of it. Right. So I'm still looking and just haven't found that right person yet. Yeah, that's got to be tough because I'm sure they're not just, uh, you know, flooding the streets out there in Beach, North Dakota. <laughs> I do have three sons growing up. So at some point, I, I know two of them have some interests. So I do have one that rides around with me a lot and learning a lot of things already. He's 16 years old. So a few more years, at least, we'll start expanding. Yeah. And what about, you know, when it comes to soil health, it sounds like you're in an area that no-till is the standard, but uh, for you, has it always been kind of an important part of how you approach agronomy or has that evolved over time? Yeah. So that's a, I guess, pretty unique thing for me. I grew up in an area that was one of the pioneers of no-till. So a lot of those farms started back in the eighties. Um, I was just a young kid when that got started, but everything was changing from a lot of wind and water erosion every spring and full tillage to switching over to managing for you know erosion and conserving moisture. So I just grew up with that being normal. So then after college, I moved to Minot and that was before that had really been moved to that part of the state yet. So it was really unusual for me to go up there and, and see full tillage and everybody saying that no-till wasn't possible because it was too wet up there. And then by the time I left Minot, it was becoming more and more common. And I would say that's the most common practice up there now. Oh, that's interesting. So you saw the evolution at two different times in two different places. Right. It's funny, you know, you don't have to go too far out of the area where something's being adopted and everybody tells you it can't happen here. And they've got a whole list of excuses. And it could be as simple as, you know, 10 miles away. They say their weather pattern is different enough where it won't work there. And it just takes one or two guys to give it a try and work out the problems and prove that it can work there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so tillage probably doesn't come up in conversation with you <laughs> very often. Uh, what are some of the other soil health practices that are either being tried or explored or, you know, that you're working with in your area? Sure. Yeah. So for my growers, since they are long-term no-till, our conversation is just kind of continual. How does it fit in with their whole system? If they're livestock guys versus just farmers, how it affects their rotation planning, doing everything we can to keep ground cover. You know, if it's something where we're struggling to have a hilltop covered with uh, residue, you know, maybe we need to do some winter wheat or some corn, some high residue crops. Because after our crops like peas and lentils, things like that, we really go through a lot of residue, just gets consumed feeding the soil. So we have a lot of bare soil after those crops. So that's probably our biggest conversation is how do we keep the ground covered? And then uh, for the livestock guys, it's how do we rotate through things like cover crops? How do we manage the manure, get it further away from the farm, covering fields that don't necessarily get covered as often, things like that. That's our main conversations. Yeah. Well, let's kind of take some of those one by one. Uh, first, going back to the, the no-till thing, I'm sure after many years of no-till, there are clear differences that may result in uh, a lot of advantages, but also maybe new problems that you just have to wrestle with because you're no-till. Can you speak to that a little bit if you're facing any of those? Yeah, so there's definitely changes over time as the guys get into long-term no-till. Uh, we get what's called a duff layer. So just a, a layer of residue at the surface, which is a great buffer for things, but also starts to stratify nutrients and things at different layers. So we get things like phosphorus that don't move very well through the soil. They kind of get stratified in that top two to three inches of the soil. And then also pH is getting to be a problem. 
So as we keep layering in, especially nitrogen, just in that top couple inches of the soil, our pHs are dropping in that just the very top layer. And then uh, as you get below that, we still have higher pH. So we've really got to watch out for that, both from a chemical carryover standpoint and also just how it affects the crops. Out at Beach, we don't have as big of an issue with that yet. But by the time we get to Dickinson and south to New England, a lot more issues there where crops just won't even grow in the worst areas when we start getting down into the fours and lower. What can you do about that? For low pH, it's an easier fix. It's a lime application. So the the hard part is finding a lime source and taking the cost and the time and equipment to actually make the application. Generally, we don't have full field scale problems. It's just pockets within the field that are a problem. So whether it's grid sampling or whatever way you find, you know, where the management area needs to be and just fix those areas. Are there any practices or products that can help that from continually becoming a problem or becoming worse over time that they're not going to solve the issue today, but just, you know, won't point us in that direction in the future? Right. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, crop rotation, different crop types that can help slow the process. But just the fact that we keep adding nitrogen, that is the part that keeps causing the pH to drop. And since we're not tilling the soil, we're not stirring things up, it just is a problem right at the soil surface like that. So in my opinion, part of why we don't have as big a problems out at beach is because we've got such a big chunk of our acres uh, rotating through peas and lentils, things where we don't add fertilizer. Yeah. And what about the folks that have livestock and kind of integrate livestock into that? I would imagine that would probably help to just lessen the the amount of nitrogen that's applied over time. For the manure guys, it's actually more of a phosphorus buildup that we get versus nitrogen. So I, I don't really see that affecting the pH issue as much. But for them, it's more an issue of if they don't spread the manure farther away from their farms, they get a, a lot of phosphorus buildup close to their farms. So we need to really pay attention to that for water quality and you know things like that. We need to even though it's expensive, haul it further away from the farm, get it spread onto fields that don't necessarily get it as often. Gotcha. Okay. So in that case, what you're saying is the economical thing would be because there's so much water in manure just to spread it as close to the to the source of the livestock as possible, but they actually need to go further out so that those farms close by don't have that phosphorus issue. Correct. Yeah. So we've, we've talked through ideas, you know, that it all takes more time. It takes more equipment, but things like composting, where you can put it in piles and stir it and get rid of a lot of the moisture then it's easier to justify hauling further away from the farm. We've tried to find a way, some type of a machine that would put it into a granule form so we could actually apply it through an air seeder, but uh, just haven't found the right solution there. That's a pretty complicated process. And the manure that we're dealing with is more beef cattle, feedlots. So it's not as consistent as like a dairy farm or, or something like that. There are processes that do that and turn dairy manure into a granule, but they've got more of a liquid manure, a consistent form. And we just haven't found a good process for us to to make that happen out here yet. Right. That makes a lot of sense. You know, kind of the theme uh, that I'm picking up is just like, this stuff never gets easy. That You know, it's never like, hey, just as long as you stop tilling, everything's going to work out. You've got other problems to deal with. Now, you're choosing better problems, at least the theory would be, but uh, it's never just like upset it and forget it. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be challenges. And as soon as you figure one thing out, then there's another challenge you need to learn about. And- so honestly, even the residue issue, when they first started trying no-till way back in the 80s, it was a, a problem of having too much residue. So how do we manage that before we can use the equipment for no-till? And so people would bail off the residue, sell it to livestock guys and get rid of it completely. And now our, our focus is all about how do we keep the residue there? Yeah. 
And let's talk about that problem. What are you trying to try to feed the soil enough residue? Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about crop rotation, part of the, the things that we look at is there's high carbon crops. So things like uh, wheat straw, corn, even sunflowers, they break down really slowly. And then you've got a crop like peas or lentils, low carbon, and uh, it really eats up the carbon from the previous crops. So that's why after peas and lentils, we just have no ground cover left. The microbes and everything just eat it up and it's gone. What about cover crops? I know you're far north and not a lot of water. Are cover crops even an option for you? So cover crops, our biggest challenge is having enough moisture and time to make them work. So we've tried a few things as far as in the fall, early seeding. That's just a big challenge for us to get enough growth out of them to be beneficial and also to not use um, enough water supply to be a problem for the next crop. So where we do find it, where we can make it work is in livestock situations. We actually plant it intentionally for grazing or haying so they can use it as their cash crop for that year. Or rarely we have years where we've got too much water and then we use cover crops to like the drown out areas, get something growing there and, and uh, take the water level back down. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine it's much more common in your area than maybe like in the eastern part of the state for farmers to also be, you know, livestock people. Is that pretty common or do you still have kind of some folks that just do crops? There's a lot of farmers who are just crop producers. For me personally, I would say it's about 50% each. I've got both situations with cow-calf producers and also some feedlots. So it's about an even split for me where it's all crop versus a combination of both. Okay. And how involved do you get on the livestock side? Being a crop consultant, obviously that, that matters, but I'm just curious of you know, how much input you have into how they handle the livestock part of things because it, you know, the more integrated that can be, theoretically, the better. Sure. Yeah, I guess, you know, from the day-to-day management of the livestock, you know, I don't get too involved with that point of it. But we do talk about a lot of things like if you're doing fall grazing, you know, what crops are we going to use where so that they can graze residue after it's already harvested. Or we talk about traffic control. You know, if if this field is going to be grazed in the spring, how do we get them off in time before the ground is wet and they have a compaction problem? things like that. Or if it's a poor piece of ground, you know, maybe that's the one where we target to put cover crops and graze that a couple of years just to try and build up some organic matter and, and improve the soil altogether. You know, we kind of touched on cover crops and the challenges of getting cover crops there. Do you have guys trying them still maybe behind like a pea or a lentil or something like that? Sure. You know, part of our conversation with that to a certain extent has evolved more into, do we let the volunteers after the crop has been harvested, do we let them grow a little longer? before we make a chemical application. And in certain cases, we even talk about weeds being part of our cover crop solution. So that might be uh, like a saline seep area where we're really not getting any crop to grow, but we're getting kochia and foxtail and things like that to grow. So the question there becomes, when does it turn from a cover crop to a weed? You know, we let it grow, but we try and terminate it before it sets seed or mow it off instead of kill it, things like that, let it regrow. So we do have some intentionally planted cover crops. And then the volunteers, I think, is just more common for our fall situation. So when we're talking about planting cover crops, that's more of a a summer management issue. So whether it's grazing or take care of a a water management problem. Hmm. Yeah, that's. uh, it seems like you're playing with fire there, letting kosher grow. Yeah, but you know, for so many years, guys have thought, well, we just keep working up the saline seep areas and it'll get better. Well, it 
It never does. That's what grandpa did. That's what dad did. And the areas never improve. And once guys have turned into, whether it's mowing the kosher off, let it regrow, something like that, then we start shrinking it down and we keep getting a little smaller, a little smaller each year. And then we control the weeds. Yeah. Are there quantifiable differences in soil tests that you see from your long-term no-till guys? And just give us a sense of like, you know, from a big picture, we've talked about some of the challenges of of the long-term no-till, but uh, let's talk about some of the benefits, especially if there's any kind of quantifiable benefits that you can speak to. Sure. The number one visual thing is just not as much erosion. So we don't have the big washouts where they can't even get equipment across it from year to year. So there's visual things like that, or in the winter, we don't see the dirt blowing off the fields and with the snow anymore, it's just all blowing snow. As far as something you can measure, sending it to a lab, organic matter is the biggest thing that we see increase. It takes a long time to build organic matter, but we went from being in the 1% range to a lot of fields up in the threes and fours now. Yeah. So that's substantial. And of course that's over decades, right? Right. But that's a substantial increase. You you, almost, yeah, absolutely. you don't often hear about improvements that high. Mm-hmm. You know, headed into this year, what are the big questions on your mind? And along with that, is there anything you're going to be trialing or testing, or is that part of the the service that you offer? Uh, a couple of the big challenges we have is working with some resistant weeds and things, and how do we use residual chemicals in combination with our in-crop chemicals? We've got some challenges with the pH and, and organic matter things that we talked about. We talked about, I guess, the low pH issues, but I've also got the other extreme where we've got uh, high pH problems, especially on hilltops. So with our sensitive crops like peas and lentils, we have chemical carryover and injury just in pockets of the field. So we're, we're trying to do some things like variable rate chemical application based on soil properties, uh, whether it's organic matter, pH. So we can make a good variable rate chemical map uh, and get the benefits that we need without the injury. That's cool. And what are you looking at for that? Uh, looking at a varus cart at the moment, mainly for the pH side of it. There's not, not very many options that will measure pH physically in the field without grid sampling. And we're, we're in large acreage farms here. So, I mean, we've got a lot of 500 acre fields and grid sampling. We need to be at one acre grids to get a good pH map for me. It's too time consuming at the moment and cost prohibitive to do that. So I'm looking at the various cart to get a good map and uh, try that out. And isn't it with pH where like it can be pretty high, like on the soil crust, and then it can like change drastically down to where the, you know, the seed is actually getting established. And to me, that seems really complicated of like, okay, how do you reconcile that with exactly when you should be worried? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's definitely, it, it gets the worst in the top couple of inches, I would say three is more common, but even at two inches, there's some changes. So some people will say, well, why don't we just do a tillage pass every now and then and mix everything back up? And short term, that could do some benefit as far as lowering the pH, but then it does a lot of damage back to our water holding capacity and all those things. And really it hasn't changed the problem long-term. It just dilutes the problem and spreads it out later. So we still have to deal with it at some point. So I really don't like tillage some people think that's an option. I don't see it as an option. Right. Right. Especially not with how little moisture you're dealing with out there. Is anyone trying strip till in your area? Yeah. Yeah. So mainly in corn, uh, we do a little bit with sunflowers, but mainly with corn. That's a good way for us to get our fertilizer, like phosphorus, potassium, sulfur in place. So it's not with the seed when we're making our seeding pass. And then uh, below that, then we place our nitrogen. So we place our, our phosphorus, potassium, sulfur somewhere in the two to three inch range and then the nitrogen deeper. Guys that have tried it, love it. 
the hardest part is always finding the equipment at a reasonable price to jump in. So some people have bought their own and a couple of other farmers have joined forces and share a machine between them. Okay. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I understand you've got a group that meets and talks about soil health. Is this like a formal thing or maybe talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. And it's not exclusively soil health. We talk about basically anything independent crop consultant related. So there's a, a group of us in Western North Dakota. You know, we tend to find each other when we're going around to update meetings through the winter and that kind of thing. And just good to bounce ideas off of each other, what each other is finding in the field, what's worked, what hasn't worked. And then we try to get together once a year and just have one big day where we get as much information bounced around as we can before we get into spring so we can talk about things that we might have forgotten as the winter went on and get a good refresher before we jump into the spring. But yeah, it's a good diverse group. We're kind of spread out, I would say, from me being as far west as Beach over to the New Salem, Mandan area, up to Botno, uh, Mohol. So it covers a pretty big geography. Yeah. And these are all crop consultants? All independent crop consultants. Yep. So they range from like me, you know, just one person up to, I think our largest group has maybe three or four employees. Give us a sense of the conversation with your farmers about soil and soil health. Do you have farmers that are out there kind of reading the books, wondering kind of like, how can I improve my biology? Are they thinking on that level a lot? Or is it more related to like, hey, I have a problem with these saline areas or with low pH and, you know, how can we improve the soil that way? Give us a sense of what their questions are, where their head's at. Sure. Yeah, there's definitely both situations. There's the obvious things where you see a problem, uh, whether it's pH or saline or whatever the case may be. And those conversations are about how do we fix this? So whether that's a short-term fix, long-term fix, is it a crop rotation issue? You know, how do we affect that long-term? There is conversation about how do we make the soil healthier in general? So, I mean, that, that comes back to our crop rotation issues, making sure we've got different types of crops there, cool season, warm season, shallow rooted, deep rooted crops that fix their own nitrogen, like our pulse crops. That's part of that conversation. And then um, also the livestock guys, of course, with their manure, how do we keep using that to our benefit and not have it be a problem? You know, you don't usually think of manure as a problem, but if, if a guy's only spreading manure on the fields within one mile of his farm, well, then we get phosphorus levels so high that it can be a problem. So that, yeah, how do we take something useful and beneficial and spread it out to more acres? Right. And this time of year, you know, gearing up for the next growing season, what takes up a lot of your time? And I'm also curious of, you know, where you go for information to kind of make sure you're up to date on everything going into the season. Yeah. So the next, I would say month to six weeks, especially is getting guys locked in on their, their crop intentions. Some guys are really good about locking them in last fall and we stay all the way until planting season with the same crop. Others, we make a plan and from fall to spring, things change and we need to make some changes, whether that's, uh, you know, economically driven or shortage of moisture and they think they need to switch crop to something that will survive. So that's a lot of this time of year is getting things locked in place, which crop we're going to do and then start building our maps. So a lot of variable rate maps. That's what takes up the majority of my time for the next month or so. So I write prescriptions, you know, depending on the guys, um, the technology is pretty cool where I can send it right to their tractor from my computer. There's a few guys that still run the, a jump drive out and plug it into their tractor, but uh, a lot of technology related things this time of year. Right. And uh, what about, I kind of cut you off before you could talk about more, like wh where do you go for information? You've got these groups, you've got the Western North Dakota Crop Consultants Group, you've got the TAP Group, but uh, other than those places, where do you go for, for more information and stay up to date? 
Uh, I do a lot of looking through extension publications too. And that's a lot of my training through the winter is extension type meetings. So they've got a lot of good resources, a lot of good people there. If there's something I can't find, a lot of it's just searching the internet, see if I can find something where somebody else has the same issue. Just because of our geography, our cropping rotations, a lot of things come out of Canada. So I get a lot of information based on research up there too. Very cool. Uh, well, this has been great, Josh. What what didn't we get to? What uh, what do we need to make sure we tell an audience of of other soil health interested folks out there? That's a great question. A lot of my conversations when I get away from people familiar with agriculture, you know, a lot of people have questions about what is organic and why is that healthier than non-organic. And I don't agree that that is necessarily true. So I like to have conversations explaining what we do and why we do it. I would challenge anybody to say our soil properties from doing no-till and doing the way that we're doing are just as good as or better than anybody doing organic. Now, do we have to do things the right way and not get carried away, whether it's with chemical or fertilizer, you know, use rotations and things like that more to our benefit instead of trying to add something artificially? Then, yeah, we can agree on that. But uh, I think our practices of crop rotation and no-till are very beneficial. All right. And uh, the question I've always, I've started kind of ending with is, you know, if, if you could give a talk to all of your all of your clients at once, you know, about something soil health related, what would be your message? Uh, stay the course with our crop rotation plans. Uh, don't get too caught up in what the weather looks like today because we don't know when it'll start raining. Don't get too caught up in the markets because we don't know when the markets are going to change. So let's focus long-term, make our plan and let's stick to it. Well, what a great place to end today's episode. Thank you so very much to Josh Hammond for being on the show. I know it's a corny soil health pun, but I just have to say it, we covered a lot of ground in today's episode. I hope you got as much value out of that one as I did. Thank you so much to our sponsors of this season of Soil Sense, the North Central Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Dakota Soybean Council, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, the North Dakota Barley Council, and Anheuser-Busch. If you're getting value from this podcast, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or both, and share your favorite episodes on Twitter and social media by using the hashtag SoilSense. We'll be back with another episode of SoilSense next week.